The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. So we're in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 30. We are in week three of a, of a series in the moment through the book of Philippians. And uh, this is generally how we like to roll as a church. We like to just walk through passages of Scripture. Sometimes that's just a few verses at a time. Sometimes it's whole chapters. Sometimes it's whole books. And so uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to be uh, in Philippians, uh, looking at this letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter while he was in prison, uh, in, in chains, writing this to a church that he'd helped start many years earlier. This church in Philippi, they had uh, recently sent him some significant financial support to encourage him, encourage him and resource him. And it was the kind of uh, financial support that really cost the Philippians a great deal. It was, a, it, was a, it was a big sacrifice for them to do that. And so he writes to them to encourage them and to thank them. Because if you were a Christian in Philippi, life was not easy. You see, in Philippi, they were a, they were a colony of Rome. And if you were in Philippi, you were proud to be a colony of Rome. You loved the fact that you were associated with the Roman Empire. And in Philippi, you, people generally said, Caesar is Lord. However, if you were a Christian, you didn't say Caesar is Lord. You said, Jesus is Lord. And that was a, that was a significant change. And that made life considerably difficult for you if you were a Christian and you were saying that. And so persecution ensued as a result. Suffering ensued as a result. If you're a Christian in Philippi, you would have been used to persecution. This is how the church got started. When Paul was there, first started in the church, and you can read about this in Acts 16, when he was there, first started in the church, it caused such an uproar that he ended up being put in prison together with Silas. And it was there that the jailer who was looking over them became converted to Christianity. If you're a Christian in Philippi, you're used to persecution, you're used to suffering. And so Paul writes this letter in many ways to encourage the Christians who were there and to thank them for their generous gift. And so we're going to spend some time just praying first and then in, this, in God's Word. Uh, and we're going to be reading these words that are intended to encourage Christians in the midst of persecution. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you so much for your word, that we have your word before us this morning, and we can understand who you are because of that. Lord Jesus, speak to us through your word. Grow us where we need to be grown, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, challenge and convict us where we need to be challenged and convicted, Lord. Father, may we have a deep sense of your presence with us and a deep uh, desire to love you and know you more. Father, I pray that would be true of us and also for the children who are with us this morning. I pray that you would send your spirit to, to speak to their hearts and to help them understand how beautiful and wonderful you are, Jesus. Amen. What does it mean to give glory to God? One of the strange remnants of cultural Christianity is when you see a celebrity or somebody receiving an award and then thanking God in their speech. It's, it's rarer these days. It's probably a little bit more common to see this in athletes. 
You know, if you've ever seen Usain Bolt sprint and run a race, afterwards you'll see him doing some kind of like pointing to the sky and saying some kind of prayer. Or maybe you're watching the footy and you see a footy player score a try and they point to the sky or they make the shape of a crucifix on their, on the, on their, over their face. And it's, some, it's, a, it's a measure, it's a, it's a means of, of giving glory to God and it often comes after a victory, after the person has just won the race, after the footy player has just scored the try. It seems to me that these acts of giving glory to God are far more common for someone after they've had victory rather than someone who is in the midst of defeat. Is that what it means to glorify God? Only when you've had victory? Or should there be more to it than that? The reason why I ask that is because Paul here talks about himself Highly honoring Jesus Christ. Highly honoring Jesus Christ. But Paul is not having victory. Paul is in prison. And it seems that he has something far deeper and far more profound in mind when he thinks about highly honoring Jesus Christ. If you're part of our life groups, one of the questions that was asked this week was along the lines of, if things were to go really bad for you, How do you think you would go at honouring God? That's a challenging question. This past Tuesday, the 5th of July, marked the 18th anniversary of the death of the Iranian Christian Mehdi Dibaj. I've been learning a little bit about Reverend Mehdi Dibaj this week. Mehdi Dibaj had become a Christian. He converted from Islam to Christianity while living in Iran. In 1983... He was arrested for his faith and was imprisoned for nine years. At one stage, he was locked in a cell that was one meter wide, one meter high, and one meter deep, and he was kept there for two years straight. Yet Mehdi Dibaj continued his trust in God. And after nine years, he was given the chance to defend himself in court. And in the final paragraph of his final court defense, he penned these words. He says, he, that's Jesus Christ, is our saviour and he is the son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord and enter his kingdom sooner, the place where the elect of God enter to everlasting life, but the wicked to eternal damnation." I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that Mehdi Dibaj had been reading Philippians 1 prior to writing this. He was sentenced to death in December 1993, but after an international outcry, he was released from prison in January 1994. However, the death penalty was not lifted from him. In June 1994, June 24th, He was abducted and his body was found 11 days later on the 5th of July in a park in Tehran. That there 
seems an awful lot closer to what God has to say about honouring him. And one of the questions that I've been confronted with myself this week is, if I was to ever suffer like that, could I say what Mehdi Debarj said? Could I honour Jesus Christ highly in the same way? And maybe you've got that question. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, do I have what it takes to be able to write something like that, say something like that? What this passage is going to show us this morning is that honouring Jesus in our life and in our death is actually not a matter of whether or not we've got what it takes. It's not a matter of the will. It's not a matter of our character or temperament or bravery or circumstance or capacity or anything like that. It is a matter of the grace of God given to us to both believe in Jesus and to suffer for him. And when we get that, when we understand that, we get to lead lives that are both beautiful and bulletproof. Nothing glorifies God like sinners receiving God's grace fully. So we're picking up Paul's words today from halfway through verse 18, where Paul says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Last week, if you were here, we had a guest speaker, Joe Kahn, and he pointed us to a previous reason why Paul had been rejoicing. That is, that even though he was in prison, even though he was enduring difficult circumstances that he had no control over, and even though his imprisonment uh, meant that there were other preachers who were denigrating him in their preaching of the gospel, he continued to rejoice that Jesus Christ was continuing to be proclaimed throughout the Roman world, throughout, uh, throughout Rome. He just didn't care. He rejoiced because Jesus Christ was still being proclaimed. And here... He finds more reasons. While in prison, more reasons. He thinks are more reasons to continue rejoicing. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Christ Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to continue rejoicing in the midst of my suffering because rejoicing carries me along as God continues to deliver me. The person who, who in the face of, of persecution, in the face of trials, can laugh at those things, can smile at them, they are able to see through those things to the appointed end of their trials. The appointed end of our trials is the glory of God. Now, is Paul able to say that because he's a super-duper Christian? The answer is no. Paul needs the prayers of the church and the help from the Spirit of Jesus to enable him to live this way. In our, in our culture, there is growing hostility towards people of faith. And this is true of us today. We need, as Paul needed, he needed to rejoice because it was through their prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus that he was being enabled to do that. As this hostility continues to grow towards people of faith, as it becomes harder and harder and more difficult to be a Christian, we're going to need that kind of endurance, but that is not a matter of our will. It is a matter of the Holy Spirit working in us and the prayers of the saints around us. We have no hope of defending the faith 
if we're trying to do it without the Holy Spirit. And we are strengthened by the church around us through their prayers. Maybe you're already experiencing persecution because of your faith. Maybe things have happened in your life, in your workplace, maybe in your street, maybe in your family, where you were treated differently, maybe treated worse, maybe left out because of your faith in Christ. If that's the case, know that it's not God's intention that you walk through that on your own. Let us know about that. Let us pray for you about that. Let the prayers of the body of Christ around you sustain you in that. Even if it's only small, you might think, oh, that's just nothing. I need to get over it. I need to be brave. No. Talk to us about that. Let us pray for you. Let us encourage you. That is a good thing for us as a church. Paul goes on. He says, My eager anticipation is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The thing that is most important to Paul is highly honoring Jesus Christ. Many years earlier, when Paul was on his way to Damascus, he was on his way to, uh, on, on his way to persecute the church that was the Christians who were gathering in, in Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to him in a stunning light. That light knocked him off his horse, and he went blind for a few days. And in that time, he experienced the warm love of God as, as all of his guilt and shame left him and went on to Jesus Christ. Even though Paul at other times regarded himself as the worst of all sinners, Paul knew the never-ending love of God. Jesus wasn't just an important focus for him. Jesus was everything to Paul. But Paul's faith also came at an immense personal cost. He had been through incredibly difficult circumstances. This stint in prison here in Rome, this was not Paul's first rodeo. Nevertheless, Paul had not been ashamed of Christ. With courage, he had honored Jesus, and he fully expects to continue doing that here. And the strength of Paul's words here is really quite stunning. He talks about his hope, and hope back then meant something, to different, meant something different to today. In modern-day parlance, hope expresses some kind of uncertainty about the future, but not so in Paul's day. Hope was a guarantee. Hope had much certainty back then. And then Paul doubles down on that hope with a word that is translated eager anticipation. It was my son Banjo's sixth birthday this past week on Wednesday. Tuesday night, the night before, he felt eager anticipation. Eager anticipation is what a child experiences the night before their birthday. Eager anticipation is what we experience when we receive a large parcel in the mail from a loved one and it looks amazing and exciting. That's eager anticipation. Paul's hope and his eager anticipation was that Christ would be honored, that he would have more chances to honor Christ. His hope wasn't vague. It wasn't just a, a, a nothing kind of hope. His hope had direction and his hope had meaning. His hope had legs on it. His eager anticipation and hope was that his chains wouldn't make him ashamed of Jesus. His eager anticipation and hope was that this was not wasted time. His eager anticipation and hope was that the gospel would continue to advance across the world. His eager anticipation and hope was that Jesus would look at Paul's life and be honored by it. 
What is your eager anticipation and hope? Can we think about what it might look like for us to say this? As we think ahead to the kind of persecution and hostility that is steadily growing towards Christians, what would it look like for us to look forward to honouring Christ during that time? What would it look like for your hope and your eager anticipation to honour Christ at that time? See, Paul's words prompt us to not only hope to survive through persecution, but to thrive in it. Now, if that wasn't enough, Paul goes a little bit further. Because his eager anticipation and hope wasn't just that Christ would be highly honoured in his life, but also that Christ would be highly honoured in his death. He's saying, if my life is spared, Christ be honoured. If my life is lost, Christ be honoured. This is exactly what Mehdi Dibaj said in his defence. Life for me is an opportunity to serve Jesus and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. That means that there's no such thing as retiring from glorifying God. There's no such thing as stopping glorifying God. I'm sure if we were to ask some of our more mature brothers and sisters here in this room, hey, have you finished honouring Jesus Christ yet? They would say, no, not yet. There is no such thing as retiring from, the, from glorifying God in everything that we do. It also means that there is nothing off the table in terms of the extent of honouring Christ. Right up until death are the parameters that Paul has set here. And this question of life and death, this, this idea of life and death, this really begins to occupy Paul's thinking for a while. It, it, he begins to unpack life and death in verses 21 to 26. And what he's doing in these, in these verses here, he's letting us in on a dilemma that he's having. The quandary for Paul is whether he should choose life or death. Now, just exactly what he means by this choice, we don't really know. Paul was awaiting trial by the Roman authorities and they had the power to take his life if they, need, if they so desired to. So it's not that he's in control of what's going on here. I suspect it's probably just the case that he's just thinking if he could choose, choose between life and death, these would be the things that he would consider. So in this epic game of would you rather, Paul considers how he could glorify God in both life and death. And his thoughts are summed up in this incredible sentence, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, that there is one of those sledgehammer verses in the Bible. It's really simple and it's really effective. Paul uses the sledgehammer to summarize what it means to highly honor Jesus Christ in life and what it means to highly honor Jesus Christ in death. He says, to live is Christ. Now, grammatically, that's a hard sentence for us to get around our heads around. In fact, in the Greek, it's even harder. That word is isn't there. So it's actually, for me to live, Christ. We can get a sense of what this means by placing that in contrast with other statements like, to truly live is to be successful or to have influence or to live full lives. Or to truly live is to get a job, get married, have some kids, buy a house, get a car, and settle down. Maybe that's what way you think. Maybe your thoughts are, to truly live means this, to truly live means that. Or, or to put it in the same grammatical terms as Paul, you, you might think to yourself, football is life. But for Paul, 
Christ is life. To say and mean to live is Christ means to occupy our entire lives with the person of Jesus. It means that Jesus is everything and everything is about serving him. If I'm to go on living things, Paul, that would mean that I get to continue serving Jesus Christ. I get to keep doing fruitful ministry. If he gets out of this predicament alive, it gives him more opportunities to serve the Philippians, helping them to grow and progress in their faith, and to know the joy in doing so. To live for Paul would mean contending with them for the faith. That's what it means to live for Christ, contending with other believers for the faith. This is Paul's motivation for staying alive. The other option for Paul is summed up in the words, and to die is gain. Death can be a scary prospect. And I'm not convinced that our world is particularly good at dealing with death. I'm not convinced that as a culture, we really know what to do with death. Death poses a significant challenge to one of our core beliefs of our time, which is that you only live once and so you've got to make the most of this life. In that system of thought, death is the great enemy. Death is the great interrupter. And for this reason, I think that our culture doesn't really know what to do with death. We'd rather ignore it, we'd rather pretend it didn't happen and then just face it when it finally comes. That's not how Paul talks about death here. He says, to die is gain. To die is gain. Death isn't a problem, according to Paul. Death means departing this world and going to be with Jesus. That's gain. And comparing that to life, he says, I don't know which one I should choose. Death or life, I honestly don't know which one is better. The way that he talks about life and death here, it's the same way that I think about chicken palmies or burgers at a restaurant. I don't know which one I should choose. And he's using that kind of language between life and death. But he's not being flippant. The reason why Paul can talk this way is because he knows that death is no longer a threat. If you're a Christian, death is no longer a big, scary thing. Death is the doorway to forever being with Jesus Christ. For those who trust in Jesus, God has destroyed death by coming to earth in the person of Jesus and dying in our place as our substitute. And instead of staying dead, Jesus rose from the grave and killed death. If you are united to Jesus by faith, you can expect then to have the exact same fate. At the return of Jesus, those who belong to Christ will be raised again. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, death's teeth have been removed, and we can say with Paul elsewhere, where death is your victory, where death is your sting. This is why this is such a hard decision for Paul. It's better for him to depart and be with Christ, but it's necessary for them, necessary for the Philippian church and for Christians all over that he remains alive. And this is what Paul eventually becomes persuaded of. As great as it would have been for Paul to go and be with Jesus, he knows that right now the necessary thing is for him to remain and be with the church. Paul is an example of someone who has dauntless faith. He looks at a life serving and suffering for God's people, even though that meant 
suffering in prison, even though that meant ridicule, even though that meant difficulty and hardship, and he says, that's for Christ. He looks at the possibility of dying for Christ, and he's totally unfazed by it. He says, bring it on. He's not a defeated victim. He's a defiant victor. And you can't threaten someone like that. You can't take anything away from that person. You can't add anything to them. This is what it means to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. I find this incredibly challenging myself. What would it be like for me to live that way? What would it be like for me to be able to say to live is Christ and to die is gain? Well, it seems that Paul actually anticipates that question with the remainder of our text. See, Paul's helping us here to understand that it's not because of his character. It's not because of of his temperament. It's not because Paul's just really, really tough or stubborn or ignorant. It's not because Paul's an apostle. It's not because Paul's a super-duper Christian that he can say these things. It's because of the grace of God that he can say these things. And the grace, the grace that nourished Paul while he sat there in prison is the same grace that you and I have access to right now. You see, a life worthy of the gospel is not just a possibility for us. It's actually expected of us. Paul commands the church to live this way. And don't be fooled. He, when he says, when he encourages us, when he commands us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, it's not an exhortation. It's not a command to muster up courage and try really, really hard. It's quite simply a recognition of something. It's a command to recognize something that is already true. He says, as citizens of heaven. This is the not-so-secret secret to living a life that is worthy of the gospel. It's that our citizenship is already in heaven as citizens of heaven. Think for a moment about all of the blessings of heaven. No cancer. No pain. No sickness. No toothaches. No arthritis. No stubbed toes in the middle of the night. No affliction, no rebellion, no strife, no tantrums, no conflicts, no fighting. There is no such thing as anxiety in heaven. How good is that? There is no such thing as depression in heaven. There is no such thing in heaven as wondering what somebody might have meant by their words. There's no such thing in heaven as, as lying there asleep and wondering and, and just re- replaying the mistakes of that day in your mind. There's no such thing in heaven about worrying about finances. There's no sleepless nights in heaven. There is just perfect harmony and peace. Everything is perfect. The earth will be in its best possible form. And that's saying something. A few of us went surfing on Friday morning. We watched the sunrise up from Karamandi. And I had been preparing for this sermon, and I watched the sun as it peaked over and made that delicious golden path down the ocean. And I thought of this verse. And I thought, how could it get better than this? It can. 
It will. Like the sunrise that I saw on Friday morning was sunrise under the curse. We're going to see sunrises that are from underneath the curse. Not only the earth, but we will be our best possible forms, fully redeemed. We'll be perfect. We'll be exactly as God created us to be, fully redeemed, fully made like Jesus Christ. God's work in us, fully complete, fully done. And chief among all the riches and the wonderful things about heaven, the most important thing is that we will get to see Jesus face to face. We're actually going to stand in front of God. We're going to behold him in all of his splendor and his glory, and it's not going to incinerate us. And we're going to be in in perfect fellowship with him. We're not going to get bored with Jesus. And we're not going to be able to take our eyes off Jesus for eternity. We're going to be consumed with his glory. In the same way that we love seeing glorious things like sunrises and whatever else. We can't take our eyes off them and all we want to do is just absorb that thing. Jesus, the most glorious thing in the entire universe. Jesus is going to occupy our attention for eternity. We won't get bored. We won't be tempted to turn away because he is everything. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, you're not just going to go there one day. You're a citizen there now, today. And that enables you to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Suppose, think of it this way, suppose you were to come into a large inheritance for some reason, and not just like $50,000 or a million, we're talking like, let's just say, just let's just be crazy, like $100 million. Like, I don't think there's anything that money can't, that $100 million can't buy, like, apart from Love and salvation, obviously. I'm like, don't, don't correct me on that one later on. But let's just say that you came into the inheritance of $100 million. However, and it's guaranteed to come to you. However, there's a delay on that coming in into, into your account. Like it's not there straight away. There's going to be 12 months. And in 12 months' time, you're going to receive all of that. It's going to be in your bank account. How would you live then for the next 12 months? I think it would be your shout. Like every lunch, every dinner. Like I would, I would, if that was you, I would love to go to dinner with you because it would always be your shout. If it was me, it, wouldn't you become incredibly generous? Like you'd say things like, this round's on me, and everyone would be like, yep, we get that, that's right. Or imagine when you receive a bill in the mail. Like when you receive a bill in the mail these days, like at the moment, it's like it's depressing. It's like, okay, more money that's got to go towards Queensland transport or energy or whatever it is. But with an inheritance like that coming your way in 12 months' time, you wouldn't think that way about bills anymore, would you? And, and you wouldn't just shrug bills. You wouldn't just be like, oh, whatever. I think you'd start to look forward to those bills because it would remind you of the wonderful inheritance you're about to receive. That bill no longer threatens you. And this is exactly what Paul hopes for and expects for this Philippian church. He says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Then, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, so whether I get to actually see you or if, I'm stay here, if I stay here, I just to rely on what I hear about you. He says, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. Living that like that, standing firm, in one spirit together as the church, in one accord, contending together. That means fighting together for the faith, not being frightened by our opponents, by those who would oppose the faith at all. That's what it looks like for someone who says to live is Christ. Their life is centered upon serving Jesus. They're not afraid of anything. Nothing can threaten them. And they unite with other believers, contending together for the faith. That person is undaunted by anything that would have once threatened them and they serve Jesus by helping others to see that that is possible for them too. This is why Paul says, when you live like that, it's a sign of destruction for those who oppose the faith. When I read those words, a sign of destruction for those who oppose you, I think of the haka. Like one of the, one of the things that I love doing, well, I kind of love doing if I'm on a, on a procrastination YouTube rabbit hole, one of the well-worn paths is videos of people doing the haka. I just think the haka is one of the most incredible, just, just amazing things. Just fierce, powerful, beautiful. And, and there are videos on YouTube of really crazy things. Now, the thing, the thing I love about the haka is that the point of the haka is to defeat your enemies before the game begins. And defeat them in their minds. Uh, one of my things on my bucket list, and I don't know how this would ever happen, is to stand in front of a group of, a group of New Zealanders doing the haka in front of me and terif- being terrified. I would love to th- experience that one day. Uh, just to, to experience that, because the idea of it is to defeat your enemies in their mind. And, and this is what Paul is kind of talking about, that the uh, per- people who oppose the faith, people who, who don't like Christians, people who don't like Christianity, people who hate Jesus, would look at the way that Christians live their lives, and that would be a sign of their destruction. Christians have a haka. It's to stand firm together in one spirit. It's to live in one accord. It's to contend together for the faith of the gospel. And it's to not be frightened by those who would oppose Christianity. This is what is true of Paul, and this can be true of us too, through the not-so-secret secret of acknowledging that our citizenship is in heaven and that has been given to us, not because of something that we've earned or because we've been good, but because of the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, the good news of the gospel is that our citizenship is in heaven not because we've earned that. If we've earned that, then that's not good news because we can unearn that. The, the, the good news is that our citizenship in heaven is guaranteed not because we were clever, because we can lose that if we're unclever. It's not because we were sinless, because that can be lost as soon as we sin. It's the free gift of grace of Jesus Christ so that we could be in relationship with him for eternity. God sent his son. And that son, his son, Jesus Christ, lived on earth. And he lived a perfect life, perfect obedience, perfect record of faith. And then he was killed for our disobedience. He took our punishment. 
He bore our guilt. He bore our shame. All, and when we put our faith in him, all of our, all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our wrongdoing, all of our guilt, all of that goes on to Jesus Christ and he receives our sin and we receive his perfect record of obedience. That is what it means to be justified before God. And Jesus Christ did that so that we would have citizenship in heaven and end up in heaven with him for eternity to have a pure and perfect relationship with him now. That's the good news of the gospel. This is why Paul says, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw that I had, and now hear that I have. In other words, your belief in Jesus is God's grace to you. That's what that word granted actually has built into it, the word grace built into it. But not only that, to suffer for Jesus is also God's grace for you. One does not come without the other. But suffering for Jesus is a grace to us because, like receiving a bill in the mail as you wait for that fortune to arrive, so too is suffering as we wait to be brought into the eternal presence of Christ. That suffering no longer controls or has dominion over us. Trials no longer make us victims. There is growing hostility towards people of faith. And my hope and my prayer as a church is that we would be a people of dauntless faith. That we would be a people who are not threatened by what the world could take away. My hope and my prayer for this church is that we would be a people who could say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm going to live for Jesus Christ and if in doing so I lose my life, then glory be to God. A people who, like Mehdi Debarge, could say, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honour of his holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.